You're listening to audio from Calvary Gravenhurst in Muskoka, Ontario. For more resources or to connect with someone in the church, please visit calvarygravenhurst.com. This week's sermon is taught by pastor of Next Generations, Mark Hockley. are going to be in Luke chapter 2, 1 through 20 this morning, so you can turn there. We're going to sort of use this text as a backdrop, um, and we're going to get into some exciting things this morning, so let's pray, and then we'll dive in to God's Word. Lord, I just want to say thank you so much um, for today. Thank you that we could gather here. Thank you for Christmas, Lord. Um, but God, we also want to come right now and acknowledge that Christmas um, can sometimes be a, a season of mixed emotions. Um, there can be a season of pain, Lord, as well. Uh, I just pray for everyone right now um, who doesn't have um, people in their lives at Christmas right now that they wish were here. God, for a variety of reasons, Lord, uh, we um, have all been touched in different ways by this, Lord. And so I just pray that you would be with um, those people here this morning. I pray that you would comfort them. God, I pray that you would be with them, Lord. And we also just want to say thank you again for these kids, God. I pray for them, God. I pray that they would grow up. God, to know you and love you more than anything, God, that their heart um, would be inclined to you um, like nothing else in this world. And God, I pray and they, w- they would know um, that you want to use them now. Lord, we believe that many of these little ones are already sealed by the Holy Spirit, Lord. And so I just pray um, that you would use them, God, in a powerful way and that they would not let um, those look down on them because they are young, God, but that they would be used right now God, some of the craziest things that I've ever seen um, were done through a seven-year-old where he got saved and you used him and his testimony to save his entire family. And so, Lord, I just pray that our kids would remember um, that they're not just waiting till they're older to be used by you, but they want to be used now. And I pray that right now that they would enjoy worshiping with us, praying with us, studying your word with us, and doing communion together. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. All right, let's read Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 20 together. Luke chapter 2. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that the whole empire should be registered. This first registration took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So everyone went to be registered, each to his own town. Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house of David, um, the family line of David, to be registered with Mary, who was engaged to him and was pregnant. While they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him tightly in cloth and laid him in a manger, because there was no guest room available for them. In the same region, shepherds were staying out in the fields and keeping watch at night over their flock. And an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Don't be afraid, for look, I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will be for all people. Today in the city of David, a Savior was born to you, who is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be the sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped tightly in cloth and lying in a manger. Suddenly there was a multitude of heavenly hosts with the angel praising God and saying glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth to the people he favors. 
When the angel had left them and returned to heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go straight to Bethlehem and see what has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. They hurried off and found both Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in a manger. After seeing them, they reported the message that they were told about this child, and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary was treasuring up these things in her heart and meditating on them. Shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for the things that they had seen and heard, which were just as they had been told. We're going to look at a particular aspect of this passage this morning, and then we're going to bring it all back together at the end, and we're going to look at what really was the meaning of this Christmas story, and what was the meaning about it all. And so first, we're going to look at the gentle and lowly entrance that Jesus has coming into this world, right? First, we see that he was born in Bethlehem. Micah 5.2 says this, Bethlehem, Ephrathah. You are small among the clans of Judah. One will come from you to be ruler over Israel for me. His origin is from antiquity, from ancient times. And youth, you already looked at this at the Christmas dinner, so you're not allowed to help the adults out and give them any answers. But when we look at this text, what do we see? Right? We often think of David um, and, and Bethlehem as the city that David lived in, and so that this could make some sense as to why God chose Bethlehem for Jesus to be born in. Um, and that's possible that that's partially true, but when we look at that text, that explanation misses the meaning of this text. So there's at least one other explanation along with it, at the very least, if not just this. And it's this. What's the, what does it say in the text? It says, Bethlehem, and then it comes after. What does it say? You are small. This was the reason that Bethlehem was chosen, according to Micah 5.2. Bethlehem was chosen expressly because it was small, especially because it was lowly. This is where Jesus, God wanted Jesus to be born, right? Because it was humble and lowly. Second, announced to shepherds. We know that shepherds were the epitome of lowly, right? They were the bottom of the social ladder, and yet they are the ones that receive um, the angels and the good news. And third, we see that he is lying in a manger, right? And so speaking of lowly, how about Jesus' hospital bed, right? It's a little bit prickly, not very sanitary, right? Jesus' humble um, coming was very humble, very lowly, and many of us know this, right? Many of us, if you've been a Christian for a little while, you, you've probably heard this say, yeah, we, we remember that the entrance of Jesus was lowly. But here's the part that we often miss and that I have missed for some time and the Lord um, sort of connected for me as I was studying. And it's this. This is Jesus talking in Matthew eleven twenty nine, 29, and he says this, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. Do you see that? Jesus describes his heart. He describes who he is as gentle and lowly. He's describing his character, right? He's describing, he's saying, this is who I am. I am gentle. I am lowly. And I believe that this is a good reason why the Christmas entrance was shaped the way that it was because it was reflecting who Jesus is. And so what does this mean? What does it mean that our Savior is gentle and lowly? Let's break it down a little bit. So first, I am gentle. 
The definition of the Greek word that we translate as gentle means a mildness of disposition. And sometimes it can also be translated as meekness, right? If you remember back to the Sermon on the Mount, we looked at meekness. And so Dane Ortland has done some excellent work in this area. As elders, we're reading a book right now, which is where some of these thoughts sort of spawned out of about the lowliness and gentleness of Jesus. And this is what he says about Jesus' gentleness. He says, meek, humble, gentle. Jesus is not trigger happy, not harsh, reactionary, easily exasperated. He's the most understanding person in the universe. The posture most natural to him is not a pointed finger, but open arms. So when you think of the gentleness of Jesus, think about this. And second, let's look at lowly for a second. Lowly, when we translate lowly, is normally translated as humble. When we think of lowly, we think of humble. And one more time back to Ortland. This is what he says about lowly. The point in saying that Jesus is lowly is that he is accessible. For all of his resplendent glory and dazzling holiness, his supreme uniqueness, In otherness, no one in human history has ever been more approachable than Jesus Christ. And so I have a couple of questions for you. And the first one is this. Do you stand in awe? Because as I considered these truths over the past couple of weeks, they simply made me stand in awe of our Lord. And here's why. It's because of what I also know to be true about God, right? What I also know to be true about the heart of Jesus, right? His disposition is gentle. It's lowly. Yes, it is. But his not, his, that's not his disposition to everyone, right? He's humble and gentle to his sheep, right? To those who follow him, but not to everyone, not to those who refuse to follow him, not to those who ignore the truth about God, right? He's wrathful against sin and he's just against injustice. He's all powerful. He's holy. He's perfect. And he's a good father who also disciplines those even that he loves. And so what amazes me and makes me stand in awe of our Lord is that he does all of these things perfectly, we can't even comprehend this because we're so prone to swings, are we not? Right? We try to emulate one aspect of God's character of who Jesus is, and then we fail in that, and then we swing the other way, right? And we fail. We can't even do one of these things perfectly, let alone do all of them perfectly together. And this makes me stand in awe of our Lord, and I hope it does for you too. And the second is this. Second question is this, does this change your view of Jesus, the idea that he is gentle and that he is lowly? I hope that it does, right? As we learn more about his character, we want to change our perception of who our God is. One last quote that stuck out to me, it says this, we picture the risen Christ approaching us with a severe and sour disposition, as Goodwin says. This is why we need a Bible. Our natural intuition can only give us a God like us. The God revealed in scripture deconstructs our intuitive predilications and startles us with one whose infitude of perfections is matched by the infitude of gentleness. Is this not how we often picture God in our minds with a severe and sour disposition? 
right? Think about it honestly. As you picture God, as you picture Jesus, right? Often I think we can picture him as we know he's loving, right? Because that's been hammered into us since we're little. But we also have this idea that he's actually just so disappointed in us, right? Or maybe he's calling us to come to him, but it's with his nose kind of stuck up, right? Or maybe it's that we believe that he's really just pretending to be loving, right? Or there's a layer of loving, but deep down, underneath it all, he's actually just very disheartened or embarrassed by us. And I think we sometimes get this idea because this is how we can sometimes treat the church or our spouse or how we parent our kids. Things that we all say, hey, we love these things, and yet sometimes we fall in to that side. But God is not like us. Thank the Lord, right? In our relationships with each other, in our parenting, we fail all the time to perfectly balance humility and gentleness with the truth, but God does not. And I think that's why we so often want to clean ourselves up before we come to God, even though we know in our head we shouldn't, right? Don't we do that? Don't you often try to clean yourself up first before you come to the Lord? And I think it's because this is how we are taught so often to deal with failure, right? I want you to think about for a second, how do you deal with failure? When you sin, when you fail, how do you deal with it? How do you deal with things at work, right? One of the things that I've noticed in myself and in others is that we only like to admit our failure, we like to show our humility after we fix the problem, right? Have you ever noticed that? right? We go, we fail, we go back, we try to fix the problem on our own, and then we come in all humility, and we're like, you know what? I really screwed up. But here's the good news. I've already fixed it, right? So it's okay, right? And this bleeds in to our spiritual lives. And here's the problem with that. When we do that in our spiritual lives, it is incredibly dangerous. It is not biblical, it's not godly, it's wrong, and it has the potential for disaster. Here's why. Because as you withdraw from God to try to go off and fix the problem by yourself before you come back to him, can you do it? No, you can't do it on your own. And so all that does is it starts to spiral down lower and lower and lower because the only one that has the power is the Lord, right? When we withdraw from God, we are throwing away the only lifeline that we have that can pull you out of your sin, that can pull you out of the mess that you're in, right? Here's the truth. As a Christian, your sin was forgiven on the cross, right? And here's the other truth, is that you were given as a Christian the Holy Spirit to live inside of you, and he's the only one with the power to help you live your life, not perfectly, but free from sin. He's the only one that's going to be freeing you of sin, right? You're not going to do it on your own. You might think you did. It's a trap, right? The only way we actually get rid of sin and live free from it here on this earth is through the power of the Holy Spirit. You can't do it alone. And so if this is you today, I would really encourage you, because I think we've all done this, stop trying to clean yourself up and just run to God, right? He's the most loving, most understanding, most accessible being in the universe. And he wants you, right? Over and over again in scripture, we see he wants you to come to him. I also love the second sentence in this quote. Look at it up there. It says, this is why we need a Bible. And then it goes on. Why? Because our natural intuition can only give us a God 
like us. Whether you've been a Christian for five minutes or 50 years, whether you are five years old or 500 years old, I implore you to read God's word. We all need God's word desperately for many different reasons, but this here is one of them. Because our natural intuition can only give us a God like us. The way that we learn about God and think about God gets tainted by our humanness, by our sinfulness, by our own failures and the failures of others, the experiences that we have. And the only thing that sifts that out is by reading God's word and knowing who he is. Let me give you an example. If you weren't blessed with a good father growing up, or you don't have a good father now, chances are high that you struggle with the concept of God as a good and perfect father. Why? Why does this so often happen? Because it's the sinfulness and the humanness has tainted how your brain constructs and deals with the concept of fatherhood. And there's only one antidote for this, right? It's learning more about who God is through his word than being obedient to his word and then finding out that he's faithful, that following him is worth it, right? This pattern of learning through God's word, being obedient, and then finding it to be true, that's what gives you the knowledge of truth in your life. And it's that pattern, through that pattern, that you can find in time God as a good and perfect father, right? You see him be faithful where us as heavenly fathers always um, have failed. And this is why we need God's word constantly, right? Because we're so quick to think that we know the truth. But it's tainted by our experiences, but the real truth is found in God's word alone. And so this is why we first need to read God's word to know him. Right, we got to go there first. It's always tempting, right, especially when life is hard, to go there and think about, man, how can God just come and fix my problems? But first and foremost, we need to read God's word in order to know who he is. And here's why. Here's why the order is important. Because understanding who God is shapes how we live out his word. Because your understanding of who he is is going to shape how you live it out. So if you only go to the living out part, you're back to your construct, right? You're missing who God is, okay? And so when you understand who he is, he's the power, right? He's the motivation. He's the example. And then we go and we want to live those things out because of who he is, because of what he did for us on the cross, right? This is why the order is important. And so we've talked about Jesus being gentle and lowly as he came at Christmas. And we've looked at what it means that Jesus is gentle and lowly, right? We've learned about the character of God and how we should respond to that. Now let's look at why he came as gentle and lowly. Have you ever thought about this? Why did Jesus come as gentle and lowly? Let's give a little bit of context to the verse that we just looked at a minute ago from Matthew 11. Look what it says. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. There's our verse. And you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. 
Do you see the connection there, right? So he's gentle and lowly in heart. And what does that mean? It means that in that he came in that way that you would find rest for your souls. And so what does the rest look like, right? Old Testament people, you might remember this, right? But the concept of rest, of God's rest, is something that comes up as Israel comes up um, out of Egypt, this idea of rest comes up over and over and over again. And so let's look at a couple examples um, to understand the concept of God's rest. Look at this first one here. It's in Deuteronomy chapter 12, verses 8 through 14. Deuteronomy chapter 12, verses 8 through 14. You shall not do according to all that we are doing here today, everyone doing whatever is right in his own eyes. For you have not yet come to the rest and to the inheritance that the Lord your God is giving you. But when you go over the Jordan and live in the land the Lord your God is giving you to inherit, and when he gives you rest from all your enemies around you so that you live in safety, then to the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there, there you shall bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes, and the contributions that you present, and all your finest vow offerings that you vow to the Lord. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, and the sons and your daughters, your male servants and your female servants, and the Levite that is within your town, since he has no portion or inheritance with you. Take care that you do not offer burnt offerings at any place that you see, this is important, but at the place that the Lord will choose in one of your tribes. There you shall offer burnt offerings, and there you shall do all that I I'm commanding you to do. If you're looking at this text in your Bible, one of the things that you're going to see in the verses that are previous to it is they're talking about the importance of destroying false gods and destroying false places of worship. And then the text switches and it comes to our section here. Look at the purpose of this passage. Look what it says. For you have not yet come to the rest in inheritance that the Lord your God is giving you, right? And then he goes on to describe what that's going to look like. What is it going to look like? It's going to look like worship to God. All those verses after the orange, what's that describing? That's describing worship to God, right? So you've not yet come to the rest. So, but when you come to the rest, this is what it's going to look like. It's going to look like worship. Here's the other verse that we're going to look at, or a series of verses. Exodus 33, 12 through 16. This is what it says. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know by my name, and you have also found favor with my sight. Now therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you. In order to find favor in your sight, consider too this nation is your people. Notice just here in the middle. And he said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight and I, I and your people? Is it not your going with us that we are so distinct in your people from every other people? on the face of the earth. What do we learn about the rest of God from this text? Look at it for a second. Do you see it? Right? He says, and my presence will go with you. 
and I will give you rest, right? The presence of God is rest, right? It's dwelling with his people. When God and his people dwell together, when the people dwell with God, they enter into the rest of God, right? It's his presence. That's what's important, right? My presence will go with you. Is it not your going with us that we are distinct? I and your people from every other people on the face of the earth. And so what have we learned here? We've learned two things, right? We've learned that God, the rest of God, is talking about dwelling with his people, and it's talking about worship, right? So the rest of God is when the people of God dwell with God and worship him. That's the rest of God. That's the rest that your soul has been longing for. And this is why we have Christmas. This is why we have Christmas, right? Because there's only one way for there to be true rest for all the souls who believe. There was only one way for us to enter the presence of God and worship God. It started with gentle, lowly, holy, all-powerful Son of God coming to earth as a baby. But the good news of Christmas is not by itself just that God came into the world. That's cool news. It's not good news. The good news is that he came for a purpose, right? The gospel. That's the good news. So that we could be with God forever. How? Right? By living that perfect life. And Jesus would die a horrible death, taking God's rightful wrath against sin that's rightfully meant for me and for you and taking it on himself, right? He died in my place and in your place to come back to life, showing power over sin, showing power over death, that if we repent, right, if we turn from our ways, repent from our sin, and give our lives to God, make him the rightful king of our lives, that we can be with God forever and enter that rest, that what we were created to do, that's why our souls find rest in the presence of God, in worship to God. It's because that's what we were created to do. That's the good news of Christmas. And so we have our gentle and lowly king. We're going to end with this verse. 1 Timothy 6, 15 says this, which he will display at the proper time, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the king of kings and lord of lords. He is king and creator of the universe. He is sovereign over all, and yet he came gentle and lowly because he is gentle and lowly, and he wants you to come to him. Why? That you would find rest for your soul. And so maybe you're here today and you've never found your soul to be satisfied. You've never found that rest that we are talking about. I'm here to tell you, you will only find that rest in following Jesus. You can ask the people that you're sitting around, right? There are many people in this room who found the same thing to be true that I have. That the only rest that my soul has ever found is in Jesus and in Jesus alone. And maybe you are a Christian, but maybe you've been a little bit stuck. Or you found yourself kind of drifting or maybe running away from God. Right? Trying to clean your life up first. 
I would encourage you, you need to do one thing today. And it's stop. Stop and run to your gentle and lowly king. He is waiting for you. He wants you to come to find rest for your soul. Let's pray and we'll do communion together. Lord, thank you for this time together, God. We thank you for the good news of Christmas. Lord, that you sent your son gentle and lowly to come for a purpose. God, I thank you for that. I thank you that you came, that we would have rest for our souls, that you would leave your place in heaven and come. God, I don't deserve this at all. Lord, none of us do. It's out of your love and your grace, God, that you died in my place so that I could be forever with you both now and also in eternity. So we thank you, Lord, for that. God, and I pray, Lord, as we come to communion, that we would remember these things and ponder them in our hearts, God, and that we would not forget in such a busy season the true meaning of Christmas. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's sermon audio. For more resources or to connect with us, visit calvarygravenhurst.com.